Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We black in the garden. You have arrived at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking, hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. Hey, soil cousins, it's your girl, Cola B. Talking, the hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden, the podcast you are currently listening to. Love having you here. If you're new, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, love that for you. You're an OG soil cousin, so you already know what that's all about. You already know what it means. If you're new here, welcome soil cousin. That's how we refer to the fam. Okay, everyone who is connected via the soil, which is like literally everybody. But for the sake of us being here together in community, we are soil cousins. So I'm very excited that that is the case. And I'm going to do something different this episode. <laughs> I'm going to cut the shit. I'm going to say that word a lot. Okay, so this probably is going to go under the explicit label. But we are literally like for real talking shit on this episode. Talking shit about shit. Uh, the episode title, talking shit about fertilizer. You know, yes. Uh, let's just get right into it, okay? Because I'm a big shit talker all up in my arena of expertise. Um, my bad. I should say one other thing because I'm coming in hot. Black in the Garden is your experience at the intersection of horticulture and black culture. We're all about all the plant things and all the black things and we want to have a good time. So as you can tell, I'm about that life, and this is going to be an episode where you will undoubtedly enjoy it, even though we will be discussing something that people don't prefer to, to talk about as much. I don't know, maybe it's just my inner nerd, but it's really, really like hype about the past and the present and the future of this particular subject matter. That's the way that we're going to break it down into those three sections, right? As always, as usual, you can go into the episode notes. There's links there. There's all the indications that tell you how to find me on social media, website, boom, boom, boom. You're encouraged to take advantage of the opportunity to support this podcast. Always, always be supporting uh, Black creatives. I'm not going to tell you no different. And so, yeah, let's get right into it, starting with the disclaimer. Okay really don't suggest you eating for this episode. Like, there's no other way around it. If you had your lunch, if this is your lunch time, judge, if this is your, you know, you making dinner or whatever, I don't know what all y'all be doing with y'all hands while y'all are listening or your mouth while you're listening. <laughs> Just anything but eating, unless you're that kind of person who can comfortably uh, eat while having a conversation about uh, human waste. We'll get into it. So it started with me falling down a rabbit hole. 
All right. I was researching the life of Booker T. Watley, who, of course, that's botanical black history. We'll get into it. If you're curious, just just to just to touch on that curiosity just a little bit. He is credited for developing the business model for the modern CSA which is a uh, farm kind of like subscription box is the simplest way that we can put it. Now, very fascinating life, very fascinating individual. But in getting into how he got to the point where he was doing the business of agriculture, I read on, the, on an interview on the Mother Earth News website, that's motherearthnews.com. And by the way, all of the links that I am citing for the information I'm sharing on this episode will be in the episode notes so that you can get an idea for yourself and, and maybe fall down your own rabbit hole and also uh, holler at me and let me know uh, via text or via the socials or whatever way that you can contact me in the episode notes. You see all the details. Make sure that you uh, holler at me and let me know your thoughts because I'm super interested in how the Soil Cousins are going to be receiving all of this. So Booker T. Watley had a lifetime of varied horticultural experiences. He was raised on a farm, a family farm to be specific, in Anniston, Alabama, <clears throat> And he received his BS in agriculture from Alabama A&M and a PhD in horticulture from Rutgers University. So he was really getting around, getting his education. Awesome. Now, here's where it got. Here's where the record scratched. <laughs> and I was like, what? So during the Korean War, Booker T. Watley operated a 55 acre hydroponic farm in Japan. Awesome. That was of particular interest to me. But then it says in parentheses that the water-grown crops were needed to feed the American troops as the soldiers often contracted amoebic dysentery if they were forced to eat local produce raised in the ground, fertilized with night soil. That's where the record scratched. Night soil. Never heard of it. Tell me more. <laughs> oh, Oh my God. And that's how I got right off of that. <laughs> I got right off of that article and went immediately to Auntie Google like, ma'am, please tell me more about this. What is night soil? Um, we're about to find out. Well, I think context clues wise, you already know. It's human waste. That's it. It's shit. Literal doo-doo. It was implied to me, it was an easy implication for me to make uh, that night soil, the, the term, using the word night in reference to the soil, especially in reference to it being human waste, had something to do with the fact that the waste was collected at night. And that did ring true. Uh, it turns out, and this is from a quick little glance at Wikipedia, that night soil was the name euphemistically given to human waste because it was removed from privies under the cloak of darkness so that polite society would be spared from confronting its own feces as uh, the men carted the crap away, leaving a trail of stench 
in their wake. As you can imagine, it was stank. Okay, so glad that we are no longer living in that time period. Um, it was a pretty big business in the 19th century. Uh, it was, and that's in America as far as the collection of human waste, not for agricultural purposes. We're veering off that trail just a little bit, but we're going to get right back to it in discussion of the fact that in the 18th century, especially around like the mid 1700s in Japan, what they were doing with the uh, human waste or the night soil around there. But worth noting that in America, in the 19th century, night soil collection was big business. Um, there were hundreds of men employed in cities like New York and DC, and they were mostly African-American and immigrants. Okay, so it was black folks and, and folks who were uh, lower on the totem pole of the hierarchy of things. No surprise there. It's always, you know, find the people who you want to <laughs> oppress the most, essentially, to get them to do literally the shittiest jobs, like literally. So the only bright side was that the pay was good. Fortunately, and, and some of us may know sanitation workers, especially in the city of New York, who make reasonable or, or great money. I didn't really get into researching how much sanitation workers make, but it's just, you know, hazard and everything else combined. Pay them people appropriately. Okay, everybody should be paid appropriately. Don't get me started on that soapbox about those types of things. But yeah, so um, these people who were the night soil collection people, also called night soil men, um, they had... <laughs> They would drive what was called rude carts. And I, context clues, you guys, rude because of the smell, obviously. And they were considered a nuisance at best. And unfortunately, their night work left them vulnerable to hoodlums who sometimes stoned the men and occasionally shot their horses. Like, just ridiculous. But that's that's just a little, little extra something, something in reference to the the night soil people who were doing those jobs in America. And now we're just going to, you know, hop right over to a different time and a different place. In 18th century Japan, okay, some people may use the term biosolids as we're considering the, the terminology, because, you know, I know words for all of these things. Uh, Biosolids is certainly, I feel, the most contemporary and the most kind of neutral-esque term to describe human waste. So we got human waste. Uh, the, another term is humanure. Uh, of course, night soil, as y'all know, excrement, fecal matter, the list goes on. Doodle, poop, shit, poop emoji. I told y'all, don't eat while you're listening to this. <laughs> And I'm trying to be as mature as possible in discussing these things, but also wanting to make sure that I'm keeping you engaged because that's what we do around here. But y'all, in the 18th century in Japan, biosolids were actually an esteemed substance. There was a thriving market for it. There was even times where there would be uh, people 
especially uh, farmers and things who would be arguing over how they could get access to the poop for the purposes that they needed to use it for because their soil was really bad. So Japanese citizens did not view human waste as unwanted muck, but rather as something of value. And I'm getting into the tea right here from an Atlas Obscura article. And what fostered the view of the excrement being of value that was so different from ours, well, compared to many European and North American countries blessed with an abundance of forests and fertile grounds, Japan had much less land that was suitable for agriculture. Okay, so their soil was just, it was trash, trash, essentially. And it wasn't for, from their fault, as far as I'm aware, as far as I could tell from what I've read. It's just geologically, some places have better soil than other places. And Japan, uh, essentially, large parts of Japan had soils that were sandy and low on nutrients. So some of us are very well versed in soil things. Some of y'all have hit me up in the various ways that you can. Of course, I encourage that. Text me, email me, hit me up. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what's good. But I definitely hear a reasonable amount from uh, soil enthusiasts who are literally studying soil. Uh, there, It just turns out that's Something that we really need to do. That That is a profession that is very valuable to society. So the thing about this sandy soil in Japan is without continuous fertilizing, it would not yield rich harvest. So you see here we're setting up the problem so we can anticipate the solution. All right. So when the Japanese population began to grow, because we know Japan, Japan, the population there, to be a pretty reasonable size. People needed more food, obviously, and the farmers needed fertilizer to produce it. So ultimately, it was the citizens who produced the fertilizer that put the food <laughs> on the table. <laughs> the citizens just, you know, doing their business. That's another way that we refer to it. Um, and the collection of that uh, waste was certainly with with a growing population just consider <laughs> how much more of this uh, fertilizer I'm using air quotes that you'll be able to collect when you do have a large population so I mean it makes sense like if we just Take the ick factor out and we just look at this in the most practical way. It makes sense. I'm encouraging you to go into this with an open mind. I should have said that sooner. But yeah, have an open mind. We understand that population dynamics, particularly in larger cities, drove up the value of human excrement, which is sometimes referred to as humanure, as we indicated in the terms that we discussed. So the excrement market, fortunately, had a very positive effect on the city's overall cleanliness. Now, that's a big perk, huge perk, because every drop of waste was gathered and used. And the Japanese cities did not have a problem 
with overflowing latrines or stinky street gutters or sanitation issues that plagued urban Europe at the time. Okay, think about like the thing about and remember, we're talking about the seventh, the 18th century, 1700s. Okay, think about the timing of the plague. There's there was multiple plagues. Think about the way that, you know, whenever these things were breaking out, generally it had everything to do with the fact that the sanitation was just horrible and there was just waste everywhere. In fact, in Berlin, city waste was piled up in front of the St. Peter's Church until a law was passed in 1671, so that's 17th century, that obligated obligated peasants who came to town to take a load home on every visit. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Could you imagine going down to the church and they like, you got to take uh, a load of doo-doo home with you? Because you know, they're not going to say shit because they, they holy or whatever. You got to take a load of doo-doo home with you on, on every visit. I could, I wonder... <laughs> I didn't make this connection while I was uh, fact-finding, but I, I can't help but wonder if that may have had some effect on people's, uh, on the, the rate that they would attend church. Because I know, look, if you tell me I got to do all of that just to go to church, then I'm probably just going to go to brunch, okay? Or somewhere where I don't have to be bothered with all of that. But that's neither here nor there. That's the thing. Uh, that's... Not the thing. That is one of the many examples of, you know, what all was happening in Europe, not just Berlin, but as, as beautiful and fashionable as Paris was um, known to be, it was also just stinky, smelled really bad. And it wasn't just in Europe, of course, as I indicated at the top of the episode, in the United States also just as bad like the the process of getting to a place as a society of having good sanitation pra practices it was quite a thing so we're getting into as as we go further we're going to get more into like the actual application and the use of human waste as fertilizer you know we understand that the places that I just indicated that were dirty and that did not value human waste, they suffered a lot more than the place like Japan, where it's interesting how that works, where when something is commodified, depending on what it is and depending on how the behavior around it works would determine something as significant as the cleanliness of the city overall. And also, of course, the... Um, agricultural practices, I'm thinking specifically about this 17th century, 18th century Japan and how they were able to, you know, use that night soil that <laughs> Booker T. Whiteley had to make a whole ass hydroponic farm in order to keep the soldiers from having access to that that particular uh, produce that was raised in the the nasty soil. We'll just call it nasty soil, but I don't mean to try to sway you because I truly am trying to be as objective as possible here. I don't want my bias to be apparent. I, But I also, I, 
I can say with full honesty that I'm not really leaning on one side versus the other. If any, well, let's just save that for the end. Let's take a quick break right now. Hey, so I just want you to be aware of the partnership with Atlanta History Center that has resulted in a special podcast series called Botanical Black History, Visiting the Landscapes of Black America. So next week, you will be hearing the very first episode of that special four-part series presented by Black in the Garden, the podcast that you are currently listening to. And we are going to get into a lot in that first episode, really uh, specifically talking about the digital collection, the of the visual arts materials that are that encompass different places and times in a very beautiful photo album essentially that is available to view in the digital archive collection at Atlanta History Center so that is certainly worth just taking a break and indicating how dope it is and how it is coming soon. If you tap into the episodes of Black in the Garden, you will see that the last episode was the trailer for that. So I would encourage you to go ahead and listen to that trailer, get excited about it, share it, share it, share it. We should always be uh, doing as much as we can to support these types of endeavors It just leads to more interesting collaborations and support for the podcast. So we're all excited about all of those things. And I would love for you to take a listen to that trailer. And of course, stay tuned next week if you're listening in real time. Okay, but stay tuned. Early March, we will be getting into the first episode of that special series. So now let's get back to the bullshit. (laughs) all right so we've discussed the past as in reference to human waste as fertilizer and now let's talk more about what's happening present day now i think we could all agree that at the very least when we're thinking about all of these terms that i've been using somewhat playfully it is true that rebranding of the term human waste could be helpful when it comes to kind of converting the overall human psychology, especially in our society, in Western society, around uh, the use of biosolids for fertilizer. That is a term that is already in use. That is a term for a, for products that are already being used in places like they're being applied to uh, places like farms, forests, and landscapes that are in need of nutrition. It is absolutely paramount that we at least indicate the fact that there is currently a topsoil crisis in America that I know. It very likely could be other parts of the world because, you know, the way the climate is being affected and the problems that we have are certainly not exclusive to where we are because the way that we 
do business, aka like this unbridled, unchecked, capitalistic uh, ways that we consume means that we have just done significant damage to the planet. So one of those ways that we can assess the, how much damage has been done is the fact that our topsoil, which is a, a very important and uppermost layer of our natural soil on the planet, uh, it is usually very rich in organic material. And of course, that is the place where the plants are doing the most. That is the part of the, of the soil that the plants need the most because they are literally growing in that particular part of the soil. So for us to have a topsoil crisis, which is resulting from, you know, land being abused and overused and the practice of regenerative agriculture not being the standard, you know, it, it's more of like a cute, maybe we might if we can thing when it really needs to be uh we definitely got to because we need to kind of thing but that's that on topsoil so there's a scholar named christopher smith in an article i read on jstore.org mr smith discussed how until fairly recently biosolids were almost always disposed of by incineration. And that policy began to change around the time that these treatment leftovers, known as sewer sludge, started being started to be referred to as biosolids instead. It's just interesting how the wording changes changing makes a difference in the whole thing. So the idea of recycling biosolids began to receive far more attention than similar projects with the term sewer sludge in use. So already just, just off the strength of just changing the wording around, we're seeing how people could be just a little less anxious about the concept of using biosolids, not biosolids. It's all the same. Gosh, <laughs> poop. Okay. So biosolids made as they are from organic waste are high in nutrients and some minerals. And today, while many biosolids are still incinerated, a great many are applied to all those places that I just mentioned a minute ago, farms, forests, and landscapes that are in need of that good nutrition. We got to get that topsoil right. So there's another scholar named Steve Spicer. And what he did was compare biosolids to other common agricultural treatments, uh, manure and fertilizer, right? And he also writes for Water Environment and Technology, which is a pro-biosolid water environment, excuse me, Water Environment Federation organization, so he definitely leans towards pro-biosolids, and that's worth noting. Uh, his analysis of existing studies concluded that biosolids are comparable to manure in terms of metal content and probably contain fewer metals than artificial fertilizers. So that's definitely important to note that we got to, you know, get really scientific about it. We can't just casually or all willy-nilly be out here 
making these applications of our waste because we have to consider, um, like I mentioned, the diseases, the pathogens, the potential for uh, health crisis of the general public. So we can't just, of course, use raw human waste, biosolids or whatever. We They do have to be processed. So we're going to get to that. That's actually actually the my favorite part like that's actually the most hopeful part because we're able to discuss more of what's happening present day and also get optimistic about what could be done in the future because it's it the topsoil erosion crisis is a very real thing and i encourage you to like i've done many times before look into that on your own and get familiar with that and determine what all you might be able to possibly do to, you know, advocate for solving that problem. There's so many people on this planet and all these people naturally just produce solid waste, but the waste is only waste because we're thinking of it as that rather than thinking of it as something that is a legit and relevant like agricultural um, soil amendment but it has to be processed so now let's get into now we're gonna go to haiti <laughs> present day to a company yes haiti that haiti yes that one uh a company called sustainable organic integrated livelihoods or soil that's the acronym. I feel like some of y'all might have heard of it before. It just depends on your level of awareness or maybe even your level of nerdiness. I feel very certain that my my like professional soil cousins, and when I say professional, I mean those of us who are involved in the study of soil science are certainly familiar with the soil organization. So soil compost waste in a manner similar to the Japanese farmers and then uses it to enrich the country's depleted lands. And by the country, I mean the country of Haiti. Haiti, of course, uh, between natural disasters and uh, socio-political concerns, is a place that is, has a significant need for the innovation that I'm about to tell you about, which really blew my mind that I'm very, very impressed about and excited to share. So the first treatment facility that soil built in Haiti was in 2009 and has gone on to become one of the largest waste treatment operations in the country. At this point, I'm reading from www.oursoil.org. So soil has two composting waste treatment facilities that transform more than 50 metric tons of human waste into safe, organic, agricultural-grade compost each month, and the quantity continues to grow. So I'm, I'm starting to feel more optimistic. I hope that you are too. Um, let's, let's continue. So they have a team of engineers, agronomists, laboratory technicians and researchers that are carefully monitoring the treatment process. And it's important to note as well that it's a seven to nine month process. Every part of the process, of course, takes time as they're being very careful 
to treat the soil, I mean, <laughs> treat the waste appropriately <laughs> so that it is as safe as possible for use uh, in agricultural purposes to, to grow food legitimately because we can't afford to risk not doing this right, not getting this right. So that explains having all of these very professional people who have read lots of books and done all the research in order to make this possible. So the organization or the company, Soil, sells what they call compost lacay. That's K-O-N-P-O-S. And it's a really cute word because we say compost, but K-O-N-P-O-S, when I first saw it, I was like, huh? And then when I said it out loud, I said, oh, okay, okay. That's a language that I just unfortunately don't speak. But that is the name of their product. And the compost is made from sugarcane, peanut shells, human waste, and bagasse. Now, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right. Bagasse? B-A-G-A-S-S-E? And what that is, is dry, pulpy material that remains after sugarcane is crushed um, or sorghum stalks um, in order to extract their juice. And fun fact, is also used as a biofuel for the production of heat or energy or electricity. Um, yeah, so there's that's exciting to me in consideration of the fact that there are lots of ways that we can use plant materials in order to replace some of these very non-renewable uh, chemicals and things that we have been accustomed to for so long. But something as simple like we, as society in general, we, we do run through a lot of sugar. So naturally, when we consider the, the raw process of sugarcane production, and you think about how much waste, aka bagasse, is created in that process that could be used, basically a byproduct that could be used to even make building materials, not just fuel and, and heat and things like that. So that's another amazing fact to certainly um, pause on. So the compost that soil sells is distributed to farmers and organizations and businesses around Haiti to support their agricultural and reforestation efforts. Uh, considering the way that the natural disasters can wipe out the trees and the forest and, and have a significant effect on the ecosystem that's in place there. Um, of course, humans are chopping down trees and stuff because that's just <laughs> something we like to do. Uh, reforestation is significant. So in doing all of that, distributing to uh, the organizations and businesses that it benefits, they are able to subsidize the cost of soils waste treatment operations. So it just sounds like super efficient. And this is not something that I'm saying is like a hypothetical or maybe, but this is a legitimate business that has been in operation. It's more than just a business. Like it's, it's I consider it a movement that is really making a significant impact on the future 
of us as people on this here planet, because this is technology that certainly needs to be implemented over here. Okay. There's understandably, there's a lot of concerns with, you know, the taboo aspect, the ick factor of the use of human waste in order to uh, create products for agricultural purposes. But if we're being practical, if we're just being solely practical, I can see how we may be able to kind of lean into it. But I'm not here to change your mind. I am here to to enrich it and to give you something something to think about. I was going to say food for thought, but no, we don't want to talk about food in this episode at all. <laughs> now, another thing that is certainly worth mentioning is that the sanitation system that soil uses emits fewer greenhouse gases than traditional sanitation interventions and applying soils compost further mitigates the impact of climate change by sequestering carbon in the soil. So there's a lot of wins there. Uh, it is a very nutrient-packed compost full of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. Some of us may know that is NPK, calcium, magnesium, uh, and plenty of carbon material that, once again, helps to rebuild that topsoil. So it's just, it's incredible to me to consider <laughs> that a solution to the topsoil crisis could literally be swimming around in our toilets. My goodness. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be crass, but y'all, we're already here now. We're we about to close out. So in closing, I would encourage you to take a look at the episode notes so that you can get access uh, to these links without having to, you know, type them all out and stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do share this with a fellow soil cousin who may not even know that they're a soil cousin yet because maybe they've never heard this podcast. That fortunately does help the podcast to grow, okay? And everything else that you need to know truly is in the episode notes. This was an episode that I was going to do some other stuff with this information and still will, but I wanted to do... An episode like not none that I've done before. And I would have had a great time, undoubtedly, in discussing this with friends, co-hosts, or whatever. But I wanted to come to you today and share this information and uh, encourage you to, you know, and fertilize your mind with this information and hope that you are uh, that much more informed for it. I cannot wait to hear from you and what your thoughts are. Um, maybe you've used some of this stuff before. I Who knows? How am I going to know until you tell me? So the phone number that you can text me and the ways that you can reach out are in those episode notes. And in closing, as we uh, get ready to get back to the things that we are doing and growing and excited about, I want to wish you love, light, and soil.